Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Glad you could join us this morning and uh, wherever you are today. um, If you wanted to open your Bibles this morning, we're going to be looking again at the book of Luke. If you'll go to Luke chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 1 this morning. Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. I think you're going to like this passage this morning. It's fascinating stuff we're about to look at here in the life of John the Baptist. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Idaria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask now as we turn to your word that you would make it clear to us. Lord, I always pray this, and and we sincerely mean this. Lord, be our teacher today. Or though you set men before a congregation of people to teach them, Lord, and you tell us that it's a part of your plan for the church, and yet, Lord, we know ultimately that you're the teacher. Lord, I yield to you in that capacity. I look to you this morning, Lord, to be speaking what, what you want to say to your people, not the words that I've put down in paper on my computer, Lord, but the words that you want spoken, because you, Lord, know what we need to hear today. And so, Lord, speak powerfully. And speak loudly into our lives today. And Lord, make us more willing to to obey and, and yielded to what it is that you're saying to each and every one of us. Fill us with your spirit. Lead us by your spirit. Teach us by your spirit this morning. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen and amen. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Idaria, and the region of Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Well, last week we left off looking at Jesus as he was 12 years old. Uh, mom and dad looking for him, finding him in the temple, and he's of course dialoguing with the rabbis, with the uh, with the with the uh, the teachers there, and and clearly knowing who he is by this point, as much as a twelve year old could. Uh, but now Luke just fast forwards us a number of years ahead, and and we pick up this count again back to this account of John the Baptist, who is now an adult. So the years have passed. Now, Luke tells us a number of things about the time in which these events unfold. Number one, he tells us it's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was in control of some of Rome's provinces two years before Augustus' death. 
Remember, Augustus Caesar is the one who sends out the edict, you know, for uh, all to be uh, counted in this census. But but Tiberius is replacing him, but, but he's really in control of those provinces two years before Augustus dies. However, he officially reigned over Rome itself from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37, and he proved to be one of the most cruel and vicious of the Caesars, especially among the early Caesars that rose to power. However, many historians indicate he was somewhat pro-Jewish in his policies. Now, even though we don't know the exact date of this specific event that John is giving to us here, uh, uh, Luke is giving to us about John, based on historical records and other surrounding events that are taking place, most feel it's safe to conclude that this took place somewhere between A.D. 27 and A.D. 29. Now, You'll notice we studied the, this gospel that Luke, being the scholar that he was, and, and based on his desire to give an accurate account to Theophilus, makes a distinct effort to link the biblical events that he describes to specific world historical events and markers in order to give greater validation to the scriptural narrative. In fact, as one commentator points out, Luke is far more concerned with corroborating the gospel events with secular history than any other New Testament author. Christianity is a historically based religion. It stands or falls on the eventness which the Bible records. And so even though Luke doesn't give us the specific and exact dates, He does give us enough information to know that these are real historical events that took place during a specific period of of history. This is one of the reasons we can have great confidence in the Bible. It's, it's, yes, we believe what we read by faith, and yet we're given enough to know the surrounding events that were taking place, that things can be linked. In the case of Theophilus, it was being given so he could go and validate these things. He would know these events that were taking place. And we have that available to us. And so it, again, is just another indicator that the Bible is extremely reliable. Well, number two, he tells us that Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea at the time that these events occur. Now, Judea was a senatorial province of Rome, and it was ruled by a governor or what was known as a procurator. Now, Pontius Pilate was a Roman from the upper middle class segment of Roman society who held this position, and he was responsible for administering the region and collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. He was appointed to this role in A.D. 26. And so you can see, again, we're kind of bracketing pretty close to where these events are taking place. But he's appointed in A.D. 26. And historians tell us that Pilate was not appointed to this position by Tiberius Caesar himself, but by one of Tiberius's chief advisors, a man by the name of Sejanus. Now, unlike Tiberius, Sejanus was not at all pro-Jewish. Remember I told you Tiberius Caesar had some pro-Jewish policies. It doesn't mean he was a nice guy, you know, but, but he wasn't anti-Jewish to the extent that this guy Sejanus was in his views and in his policies. And I say this because a lot believe that the policies that, that Pilate enacts during his reign were largely designed to keep him in favor with Sejanus who had appointed him to this position. Now, Pilate is described as being a cruel and an and a, and, and uncompassionate dictator. 
And yet at the same time, he's presented as somewhat weak and, and easily manipulated. Historical, historical accounts tell us that he's a man of some really interesting personality contrasts. And I, as I mentioned this morning to the group, you know, if you've seen any of the Jesus movies of any kind that have been out over the years, and I'm not always a fan of those things. They either present Jesus in a wrong light or he's, he's weak. He's a weakling and everything else. But some of the historical characters, they do a pretty good job with. And in most of them, you get this picture of, of, of Pilate not being a nice guy at all, really kind of being a, a dictator. And yet at the same time, he's really conflicted. And we really see that in his dealings with Jesus. In fact, the biblical accounts kind of give us the picture of him being very conflicted as he deals with Jesus. Well, number three, Herod is ruling, or Herod Antipas is ruling at the time, and he's serving as Tetrarch, which is another name for governor of the region of Galilee. And his brother Philip was Tetrarch, or governor of Idorea in the region of Trachonitis, and his other brother Licinius was Tetrarch of Abilene. Now, these men were all part of a puppet dynasty that was installed to power by the Romans. Herod was simply the dynasty name. It's not the actual family name. It's the dynasty name. It's the same thing as with the Caesar. Caesar wasn't the name of a family. It was the name of the dynasty that ruled. And the Herods were Idumeans or Edomites. Uh, Edomites were the descendants of Esau. But over the years, they descended through a mixed bloodline. Now, Herod the Great... Herod, not to be confused with the one we're talking about now here, Herod, Herod Antipas, but Herod the Great was the first of the that family to be installed by the Romans as the ruler of Palestine. And he was the one who was in power and rule, ruling in this region when Jesus was born. He's the one who had all of the baby boys killed because he feared the, the threat that the Messiah would pose to him. But when he died in 4 B.C., Palestine was divided into three ruling regions, with each of his sons placed in leadership over these regions. And these men were, of course, all puppets of Rome. And needless to say, none of them were, were nice guys whatsoever, as, the Jew, as far as the Jews were concerned. And they were driven in the same way that the Romans were. They were driven by power and by greed. Uh, number four, we're told that Annas and Caiaphas were serving as high priests at the time that this event takes place. Now, Annas originally served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. He was appointed by Quirinius, who was the Roman governor of Syria, but he was subsequently removed by a guy by the name of Valerius Gratus, who was the Roman procurator of Judea. Now, his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, eventually succeeded him. It was appointed to the position of high priest by Rome in AD 18 in exchange for a price. In other words, he bought this position for himself. He, he served in this position then until AD 36, and he played a key role, not only in Jesus's crucifixion, but in the persecution of many of the disciples in the early years of the church. Now, the reason both of these men are listed here as being the high priest isn't because both of them were serving as high priests. But it's because even though Caiaphas at this point in time was officially the high priest over the nation at the time that these events occurred, his father-in-law Annas was the patriarch of the family and he was the real influence among the priestly class. And he continued to play a significant behind the scenes and sometimes not so behind the scenes role. 
And suffice it to say, this was a powerful family. I mean, it just was, who, who had great influence over the nation of Israel. And like the Herods, they too were motivated more by political power and greed than by spirituality. They all played a significant role in the events that unfolded in their time. Now, with this history lesson, then I know you can be sitting there saying, why did he spend so much time in all this history? Well, listen, do you get the picture? I mean, do, do you have a sense of the picture that's being painted for us here? Luke is giving us an account of the names, not just to give us a historical time frame, but to give us the contextual backdrop, uh, what things were like as this next section that he's about to address, uh, address unfolds, uh, a contextual backdrop of how dark things were in this moment in time in the nation of Israel. And yet, once again, and don't miss this. Yet once again, it's against this backdrop of darkness that, light, that the light of God begins to shine. As Luke tells us that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. You know, back when we began the account in this gospel and of Jesus' birth, we talked about the same kind of things, the darkness that existed at the time that Jesus was born. In the fullness of time. And the fullness of time was a dark time. And it's just growing darker. The picture we get here is that as time is passing, it's getting darker and more corrupt. The Romans are getting corrupt and, and more powerful. And, 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 and even their own Jewish leadership is, is equally getting corrupt. Even the spiritual leadership. How dark this is. And yet God breaks onto the scene in this simple and profound way. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Folks, I, I can't emphasize and encourage you enough. Do not, let me say again, do not be overcome by the darkness that is consuming our world today. Don't, don't give up hope in regards to what God can and might very well do in the midst of it all. Don't lose sight of how God works, no matter how dark it might seem or even becomes. Never rule God out of the equation because it is never so dark that God cannot work. And it's often in the midst of darkness, often when the darkness has reached its seeming peak, that God steps in and begins moving in ways that we never anticipated. And keep in mind, sometimes God allows the darkness to reach its peak. <laughs> you hear what I just said? Sometimes God allows the darkness to reach its peak before he steps in so that he can he, he what he's offering will stand in stark contrast to the dark backdrop. You know, I'm reminded of of, of jewelers and in particular diamond merchants. One of the ways you measure the value of a diamond isn't just by holding it up to light. No, the way it's measured is they roll out a black velvet piece of cloth and they lay that diamond against that black cloth and then they look at it and examine it. Why? Because it stands out in such stark contrast. The light gets illuminated in contrast to the dark backdrop that exists. And that's how God works. And we can't forget that. Don't let the events of the day consume you. I know it's hard right now. I know that we look around and we see all sorts of things happening. I mean, everything from riots in our cities to political intrigue all the way around. And, and of course, all the conspiracy stuff that's floating on top of it just doesn't make it any better. And you see all these things going on and you can get so absorbed by it. I believe personally God's people are getting way more absorbed in these things than we really need to. And we're losing our focus. 
of what God wants to do with us and through us, and maybe even shining his light in some ways. You know, it's interesting. I was somebody I, I picked up the other day that there's a, a, a an apparent apparent, and I say this carefully, that there seems to be some kind of spiritual happening taking place on in California, and like the beaches, and they're saying that it's very much reminiscent of the Jesus movement back in the 60s. You know, and not long ago, I wrote about how the 60s and 68, when the Jesus movement really began to happen, was in the midst of a, of a situation very much like this. The Hong Kong flu was raging, okay? The Hong Kong flu was raging, and there was rioting in our cities, Boy, history tends to repeat itself. Nothing new under the sun. And yet in the midst of that, God broke through and he reached a group of hippies on the beaches and they started coming to Christ and in faith. And and really today, you know, there's many of us who are in faith today because of that movement. It's true revival. Some suggest that what they're seeing out there may be uh, courts out. You know, and I don't mean to be negative, but courts out. You know, there, there have been lots of things that have been touted as revivals that aren't revivals. I want to see a couple of things happen. I want to see the Word of God being taught. Because if the Word of God is missing in the equation, it's not going to be a true revival. And I believe it's in the book of Amos, if I got my book right. I think it's Amos. talks about a famine in the land, and the famine is the Word of God. But there's a famine. We're experiencing, I believe, in our own nation, a famine, not just a spiritual famine, but a spiritual famine that exists because of the lack of teaching of God's Word, the lack of consistent teaching. We've given ourselves over to all of the emotional stuff, all of the thrilling stuff, but we've negated the Word of God. And that's why we see so many wacky things happening. There are going to be wacky things happening when the Word of God and, 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 and a revival and, and an awakening and things are not being grounded on the Word itself because the Word of God is what helps us discern. The Word of God is what changes hearts. You know, back in the 60s, when that happened, when the Jesus movement happened, it happened because uh, guys were going down to the beach, guys like Chuck Smith were going down to the beach and opening up the Word of God and teaching it to the hippies, and the hippies were getting saved by the droves. And then they packed into the churches to hear more teaching of the Word of God. So I don't know if what's happening there is a true revival, and I don't embrace everything every time something exciting happens that seems to be. I wait. Time will tell. But with all my heart, I don't discount that God could do that. I don't doubt in the midst of all of this that God could absolutely, in the midst of the darkness that seems to be reaching its apex right now, that God could break through and do this. And, and to be honest with you, it's my prayer. It's my prayer. Just one more time, Lord. I've said that for a very long time. Just one more time before the rapture. One more time. Oh, yeah, that's something where I differentiate on a revival, too. I know that some of the modern view of revivals is that the revival that God's going to send is going to transform the world and make it ready for Jesus coming and, and the kingdom will be established on earth. I do not believe the Bible teaches that. That's the concoction of men, not of God. When I look at the Bible, and I just finished teaching those of you who are with me here, teaching through the book of Revelation, we know that the world is not going to get better. The world will grow darker and darker and darker, and it's going to culminate in this period of time known as the tribulation. And during the tribulation, it will reach the darkest that the world has ever reached. It's death, destruction, supernatural events pummeling the earth. And yet even there, against that dark backdrop, the diamond of Christ's life, light is going to shine. 
because he will step onto the scene at the end of that seven-year period, and he will come back. He will return. He will break on. And so we even know there that that will happen. But but look, I, I understand that any kind of revival that I talk about or awakening has to do with an awakening of souls and a revival of the church for the reaching of souls before the rapture occurs, before the tribulation begins. I have to tell you honestly, I am so glad that I have the rapture to look forward to. I know some people believe we have to go through the tribulation. I am not of that venue, and not because I don't, I, I, I prefer not to be. It's because I believe the scriptures are very clear. I believe that God is going to rescue his church and remove her from this earth for a number of reasons, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, I, those of you that have been following me on Facebook, you know that this week has just been a terrible week for us at our house. We had a storm that descended in a matter of minutes, and in a matter of minutes took down three of our giant Douglas firs, flopped them right off snapped them off halfway up. One of them just blew it right off at the base. On top of that, my basement flooded. On top of that, my air conditioning went. Oh, my goodness. You know, it went out. And then the worst of all, my Internet went out. I think that was the worst of all of it because I couldn't get on my phone and Facebook and everything else. But I thought to myself, and I almost had to chuckle at the end of it, is I thought to myself, wow, if I thought that was tribulation, that's not even close. It's not even close, and I won't experience what the world will one day experience as a believer, nor will you as a believer. That we have to look forward to the light of Christ breaking onto the scene even before that happens to remove us from this earth. Praise the Lord for that. And yet at the same time, we're not there just yet. I don't know when that day will be. I'm not a predictor. I don't have a, a, a magic spiritual globe to know exactly when the rapture would be. I don't have an idea. I can look at the events in our world and say, well, we're definitely in late, latter days. And we're getting closer with each passing day and hour. But I don't know when. And in the meantime, we're here with a mission. We're here to, to share the good news of the gospel in the midst of this dark world. And my heartfelt prayer is that God would awaken souls that unbelievers would come to faith in Christ before the tribulation happens so they, like us, can be removed from this earth before that would even begin, assuming we are that generation. My heart is to see just one more time, Lord, that you would do that. But sometimes the darkness has to precede that. Sometimes our world has to get to the place where men and women just lose hope in the world and begin to look for the only hope that they can have so that when Jesus appears with that hope, whether it be through the preaching of his word that reaches them in a powerful way, that there's something being offered that stands in contrast to this dark world. Will he do it again? I don't know. But I always have hope, as should you. Because just like we're looking at here, things were dark. Things couldn't have gotten much darker. And yet all of a sudden, God very quietly begins to speak into the life of a servant. And from this, one of the greatest revivals within the nation will take place as, as hearts are being prepared for the arrival of their long-awaited but soon-coming Messiah. Maybe God will do the same in our world today. Just one more time. Well, look on at verse 3. He goes on, and, and, and he went into all the regions around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation 
of God. Luke, Luke doesn't go into the details about John that many of the other Gospels do. But based on the other accounts, we know that John had been living in the desert up to this point. And, and a number suggest, you know, for good reasons, that he was part of the Essene community in the Dead Sea region of Israel. Now, the Essenes were a Jewish mystical sect somewhat resembling the Pharisees, but far more pure than the Pharisees ever were, and, and far more austere in the way that they lived their lives with extreme ritual purity and separation. They originated around 100 B.C., and they disappeared from history after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And interest in the Essenes, most people didn't even think about them until recent history, but the interest in them got renewed with the discovery of what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were likely recorded and stored in caves that these, these folks inhabited. In fact, if you go with us to Israel next year, this will likely be one of our stops as we go down to the Dead Sea region. You can see where one of their communities were. And you'll see the actual caves where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a young shepherd boy that was throwing rocks. I think it was back in the 50s, I think it was. He was throwing rocks into a cave, and he heard something break. And so they went in and looked, and lo and behold, here are these perfectly preserved parchments that have been stored in these jars that validate many of the books of Scripture that we have today. And yet they could be dated back to the Essenes. The Essenes had put them into these jars to be stored and kept. And so this was the Essene community, and, and people have gotten interest in them in the years with the, the rising of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse -verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.